here we are now with episode number 11 of our series, You Are the Chosen One. Today we're going to talk about legilimency, as well as occlumency. This is our subject for today, and it's a deep subject, it's a deep art, the art of legilimency. And how this comes up in our story is that Harry keeps having these dreams, or these sort of visions. And one of the visions is of him actually attacking his friend's dad, Mr. Weasley, in the Ministry of Magic while he's at work. And Harry wakes up from this dream and says, something's wrong, something's wrong. Sound the alarm, something's gone wrong. And then they go to, well, where Harry thought he'd had this dream or the setting of this dream, and they actually find Mr. Weasley there, and he's been attacked by a snake. So in quite a dramatic way, Harry learns that his interior world, his dream world, correlates with the outside world. And the thing that's really disturbing for Harry is that he'd had this dream, he'd had this vision from the point of view of the snake, like he was the snake, and he'd felt the intentions of the snake, the evil intentions, he'd felt what it was like for the snake to really want to kill this man. And there are a lot of details throughout this plot, and there's a lot of laws within this world of wizardry that J.K. Rowling has built up to make this a understandable turn of events. And we know that, well, basically, Harry and this Dark Lord Voldemort are connected, and they're connected intimately in many ways. And so his world of the interior and his dreams and his thoughts and the exterior and what's happening with this Dark Lord, particularly in relation to this evil man, this evil wizard, is becoming more and more real and more and more complex. And the other side of the plot is, well, Dumbledore's been neglecting Harry and not really talking to him. And Harry's not been allowed to join the Order of the Phoenix. And a lot of people have sort of just been avoiding him. And he's feeling more alone and more isolated than ever, when really he needs more, more support than ever, considering all that he's been through in the last few weeks. But the reason comes out that Dumbledore believes Voldemort can read Harry's mind. Dumbledore believes that this evil wizard can get information telepathically from Harry, which is why Dumbledore has been ignoring him and shielding himself from him. And this is yet another echo of the adult 
trying to do what's best for everyone by treating a young adolescent a certain way. And it actually ends up doing a lot of harm to this young adolescent. And Harry's right in the thick of it. He's right in the middle of his puberty at this stage. He's got the puberty blues. Because not only has he got all his school stuff going on, and the Dark Lord going on, and all these evil dreams, to top it off, he's got these relationship things going on with this gorgeous Chinese woman, Cho Chang. And it's a bit confusing to him as how to fit all these things together. So really, we can't say, well, how should the adults act in this case? What should they have done? Because they've got a legitimate concern, which is, well, we shouldn't be sharing too much information with Harry because it might compromise the good side. It might compromise the goodies. And on the other hand, well, Harry really does need support. Because he's come to the point where He's been so neglected and so let down and there's so much information that he hasn't been let on that there's no real way for him to actually get on board. It's almost like he's too far gone because if you consider it like this, if all the adults, say Dumbledore was at this point in our narrative to turn around and say, okay, Harry, I made a mistake. Let me tell you everything. Well, there would first be a lot of anger there. There would be a lot of frustration there. Why didn't you tell me before? And in many ways, this has been going on for a very long time. There are many things which Dumbledore isn't telling Harry. And this is the echo of what, do the, what should adults tell adolescents? How should they treat them? Should they simply be taking the attitude of, tell me everything? Tell me all that's going on. And really say it simply. And well, it's not that simply. Because when you go to explain everything, well, where do you begin? Well, start with what's important to you. So tell me what's important. And maybe Harry doesn't even know what's important to know about. He doesn't even know what he wants to know. And maybe even more deeply than that, he just wants to feel a sense of trust and a sense of closeness and a sense of flowing communication between him and the older people in his life, particularly the older men. People like his teacher Lupin, people like his godfather, Sirius Black, people like his headmaster or his Wise man figure, Dumbledore. And that's very important to understand for adolescence. It's a very tricky terrain to tread. And I like to think that, well, if we just spoke the truth, and we had the guts to really say what we meant, what we mean, and what we understand, and really admit the limits of our understanding, then things would work out much better. But of course, another part of me says it's easier said than done. 
it's very hard to do that when the actual rubber hits the road and you're in that situation. There is a fear of both sides. Dumbledore has a has a concern. I, I don't know if I would say Dumbledore has a fear of Harry, but he has a serious concern. So we forever have this sense that there's more to the story than is being told. And that is very much typical of the age Harry is at. And the solution to all this is Dumbledore says to Harry that you are going to learn legilimency. You're going to have lessons and start to understand the craft so that we can move forward, so that you can be helped, so that you can understand. And so Harry, well, he starts getting lessons from none other than Severus Snape in Legilimency and Occlumency. Occlumency. It's a bit of a tongue twister, some of these magic spell words. Don't, don't even know if I'm pronouncing them right, but feels all right to say them how I'm saying them, so I'll keep saying them this way. Wouldn't be the first time in this series I've got something wrong. <laughs> so Harry has ongoing lessons with Snape, and it's a real, it's a real sort of typical picture of the student and the teacher. And it's not such a teacher in the typical term. Like when we normally think of teachers, we think of someone who's just doing the job and doesn't really have much of a emotional ability to care really about their students or even their subject. Like the word teacher, it's a very sort of it can be used quite easily as a derogatory term, I find, for many of the circles that I move in, or oh, you're a teacher, how boring, or how can you corrupt the minds of the young, or how can you fall into something so stale, or so on and so forth. But of course, there's always the other side of this, because it is a noble job. Like, I don't want to get this idea out, this sense out there that I'm against teaching. I mean, we're... we're we're in this situation right now, you and me here. I mean, I'm a teacher right now. So be careful what you say, Doster. But in the case of Snape, he's, well, that's not the kind of teacher we're talking about. We're really talking about someone who is genuinely skilled in this art of legilimency, and he's one of the best. He's one of the best. And we actually learn in many ways, but Snape is one of the greatest wizards, the most skilled wizards, and this is just one of his deep skills that he has. So when he goes to teach, he, he really teaches it from a deep respect of the craft, and he's sincere about it, and he's got the nuance and the history and the depths to it, and experience to it. And now he's been given this student who he already resents, he already doesn't like in many ways, he already 
has shown throughout the whole the whole narrative that he just doesn't like him. And now Dumbledore said, "Well, you have to have this student for this cause, for this important cause." And Harry even kicks up a bit of a fuss and he says, "No, anyone but Snape. Can't someone else teach me?" I really don't want to have this teacher. I don't want to have one-on-one lessons with Snape. I can't think of anything worse. Sounds like detention. But Dumbledore insists because Snape really is the best. And there's many complexities to Snape which are yet to come out at this stage in the plot. And in his first lesson, well, Harry sort of comes in and he says, well, what's legilimency? Is that where you read minds? And he's sort of got this smart-ass attitude. And he's always got these, these cute comebacks. He's got these quick remarks which tick off Snake. Snape. Of course, Snake and Snape do sound alike for a reason. <laughs> We've covered that before. But it's, it's the smart Alex student. It's the reluctant student. It's the, oh, I'm too good for this, or do I really have to do this? Is there really anything in this sort of attitude in the student? And the student is meeting, well, actually someone who really does have a deep wisdom, like it's a genuine wisdom, and it's a very deep skill. And Snape sort of has this thing like, oh, you call it reading minds? You're such an amateur. You really don't understand. You really misunderstand this. And he goes on to explain. And and in the book, well, he's got this way of talking. It's like, he says, like he's weighing his words. He's being very careful with what he says. He's being very clear. He's saying things like, you have no subtlety. The mind is not like reading a book. It's complex. And it's got many facets to it. And the art of legilimency is successfully navigating someone's inner world and correctly interpreting what you find. And this is a skill that you must learn. Reading minds is essential for life. And just in the sense that it's essential that dark forces will come and take advantage of you if you don't understand it and you don't have this skill. Conversely, there are great beauties to find and there are great treasures to discover in reading minds and Harry's at the age where he's really beginning to ask certain questions like what is the mind what do dreams mean 
What do other people think about? And the mind is abstract. It is quite ethereal, smoky, hard to pin down and define. And there's whole, there's whole theories. There's multiple theories of mind. This is an entire subject. What is the mind? And many of those things we've talked about before, not in this series, but elsewhere. Things like spectrum thinking, or second-tier thinking, or linear thinking, and so on. And in a basic sense, we start out with the idea that, well, the mind is the words. The mind is a voice. So just like you have your voice when you talk, well, your mind is talking. And the words correlate to things in the world. And when you talk, you're sharing your mind and the words are going into my mind so I can understand your mind. And the idea of I can read your mind is, well, I'm going to say what you're thinking without you having to say it, which means I'm saying words out loud which are also being said in your head at the same time. And then you say, ah, you read my mind. But there is a lot more beyond that. That's really just the first ABC hypothesis of what the mind is. Because when you inquire deeper into the mind, you find there's also an image. There's also a picture. So you can close your eyes and then look around and you can say, well, what do you see? And you can be in a place and there can be people. And there can even be people talking within this place. And there are different colors. It's a different type of day. It's a different atmosphere. There are different smells. And then there's also the feeling. There's the emotional side of the mind. And for many people, these things don't become differentiated. The mind and the body are not differentiated. Because we can say, well, who's doing the thinking? Where, where do thoughts come from? Who's listening? Who's listening to the voice in your head? Where do the words that the voice in your head speaks land on? Where is that place? And by this method of pointing out the different, how should we say, the, the cameraman of the mind, if we take the mind as like a camera, then we're going to say, well, who's the cameraman? By pointing out, where's the cameraman, where's the cameraman, you actually build up a separate witness. And from there, you're starting to 
get into deeper territories because things are more complex because now you're listening. Now what you can do is you can have a train of thought, which is a voice going along saying words, while you also have a feeling somewhere else. You can say, well, this train of thought is happening to this thing and this feeling is happening to this thing. So you've got three points. You've got feelings, train of thought, and the thing that it's happening to, which is you, which is your sense of self. And this process of dividing up the inner world and compartmentalizing it and really making them clear is a never-ending process. It becomes more and more complex. And the deeper you go into this, the more the mind and the inner world becomes like, well, it becomes like Hogwarts. It becomes like a wizard castle with magic going on all over the place. Because just like you have a voice in your head, it's possible to sit in the Great Hall and there's 150 students, 200, 300 students, all having their own conversations at once. Well, that also is a mind. It's possible to have a train of thought, which is 300 conversations at once. I remember someone asked me once what thinking is like for me and the analogy that I came up for came up with was that sometimes when I think it's like there are there are 50 movies playing at once and they're all playing in fast forward and every half a second or so it changes from one movie to another I'm seeing each screen moving in and out. And yet I'm still following the plot of all 50 movies. And that's a very, that's a sort of, that's like the visual version. So if we have the conversation of 200 students being like the the voice in the head, well, then this analogy of 50 movies playing on fast forward and every few seconds it's a different shot. That's like the visual version of that. And this is just two components of the inner world. So it's one thing to it's one thing to know your own mind. It's another to find another's and they go hand in hand. And you can see this in Snape and Harry. Snape can easily read Harry's mind. When he's doing these practice rounds and Snape goes in and reads Harry's mind, or he does the ligamentsy on him, then it's so easy for him. And so much comes out and Harry feels so exposed, like there's all these, there are these private things happening. And he can see, well, now Snape's finding them and seeing them. And he's really getting stressed out about it. He's saying, no, I need some privacy. No, I don't want you to see that. So for Snape, it's easy because Snape is practiced. And for Harry, it's a little bit more difficult. Which says to us that it's a skill which does need to be developed 
as not just, oh, how do I read someone else's mind, but also how do I read my own mind? And that really is the question that you can answer to find how to read other people's minds. How do you get inside someone's mind? How do you understand someone? Because really, we, we, we can collapse this thing of, I can read your mind and tell you what you're thinking beforehand, which is sort of a, a good party trick, but it's really just a party trick. And then on the other hand, you can say, well, let's read your mind afterwards. So let me tell you a story or let me give you a speech or let me talk about something. And then afterwards, you tell me what I think. So let's talk about Harry Potter. And then afterwards, you can say, well, what do you think of Harry Potter? Or I can say, what do I think of Harry Potter based on all that you've heard me talk about? And you can understand my mind by the words. Now, for some things, how many, how many words indicate how much of the interior world? Well, that's a ever-defining scale. That's an ever-growing scale. Some people can share very deeply what they think in a very few amount of words. Some people don't need to say much for you to know what they're thinking. And conversely, of course, some people babble on and on and on. And you can't understand them at all. And really, what you end up thinking is, oh, that person's a bit confused but they don't even know it themselves. It's actually possible for you to know someone else's interior better than they know it. Because they're talking and they have these words coming out and you can see what they're thinking and you can even tell them, is this what you're thinking? And they say no. Or they even get offended. So it's one thing to read someone's mind and get it right. Well, Actually, you can go even a step beyond that and read someone's mind better than they can read their own mind. And there are sort of textbook things to this, you know, like there's, there's tone of voice, there are listening to reactions, there are watching facial expressions, there's the watching how the emotion affects you as a listener, there's body language, there's eye contact, and then there's probing questions, like how do they respond to test, like you can call them test questions or probing test, uh, probing questions, leading questions. And you can, in a sense, read someone's mind just by asking them questions because they'll be talking a little bit and then you'll sense you can sense there's something deeper or there's something more personal or there's something more interesting that they could be talking about and then you ask them about that and then they talk a little bit more and then it comes up again of something sensitive or something meaningful or something deep and you ask them again and then they keep talking a while 
And this process can go on and on. And it turns into quite a juicy conversation. It's quite a wonderful conversation. And that person might even turn to you and say, well, you ask really good questions. Yeah, you really, you really understand where I'm coming from. And I've never, I've never thought about this before, but something's coming out. You know, these sorts of responses to your questions. Or what might happen at the end of this kind of conversation. But these sort of textbook things, they, they're, they're only the start. They're only scratching the surface. You need to go so much further beyond that. And to do that, you need to understand that when you're reading someone's mind, you're sharing world space. You are sharing perspective. Which in many ways is much deeper than just the mind. When you work on your interior world and you complexify it, the mind can come actually can become actually a very small component of that. Like how you feel in your body or your emotions or your perceptions, these can dominate very much more than just the voice in your head. And it's even possible, of course, to just quiet the voice in your head. For it to just sit and be silent. How are you going to read someone's mind if they're not thinking? So, to share world space... Well, that means being open to them and really putting the pieces together. And it's not just a matter of listening, but it's a matter of perceiving. And this is one of the things that Osho talked about a lot, which is how do you communicate from one person to another? And a portion of Osho's teaching dealt with this problem because, well, he was the, like Snape, experienced, sincere, insightful, full of wisdom teacher. He was the Snape. He was the one who was doing the teaching. And, well, you and me, us common folk, we are the Harry Potters. We're the smart-ass kid. Whether, oh, is this like reading minds, sir? And the, the difference, the, the difference in world space is huge. When there's, a, there's an overlap of perspective, when there is some world space shared, it's very small. So you can imagine Snape... With all his wisdom, he's trying to teach Harry. And he basically ends up saying, look, you're not getting it. You're really bad at this. You're the worst student. And it might be that Harry isn't very good at it. But to remember that by proportion, it's always going to appear to Snape that Harry isn't very good because Snape is so experienced. And an experienced teacher is aware of this. 
and every teacher has to come to terms with this, which is that their students really are dumb and they're really slow, but they have to be patient with them. That's just one of the things of teaching. But say, say Snape and Harry have a lesson sometime and Harry actually learns something, well, then it's like, well, you're making progress. There was some overlay there. You've gained some of the knowledge that Snape had. And if we translate this into, well, sort of the Osho disciple, Osho follower sort of comparison, then Osho is going to be understanding his student in such a way and have so much overlay in his perspective, really on the side of Osho, not so much necessarily on the side of the follower, that the follower is going to think, you read my mind. You can see exactly what I was thinking and feeling and explaining it and reading it better than me and saying it better than me. And that is to do with the proportion of overlay between perspectives. So Harry, one lesson, gets a bit annoyed at Snape. And he goes off at him and decides to look into his memories. Now, I can't remember if... I think what was happening was Snape was taking out certain memories before each class, each lesson with Harry, and keeping them separate. And then Harry had decided to go and look at those in the magic bowl, the pensive, when Snape wasn't around. And what he saw was that Harry's father, his now dead father, was a bully to Snape when they were at school together. He actually saw his very own father humiliating Snape in front of all his friends, in front of all his classmates. And in fact, I believe that the magic spell that Potter Senior was using on Snape was the same magic spell that the evil Death Eaters had been using on the Muggles at the Quidditch World Cup. And it's the magic spell which allows you to pull someone up and turn them upside down and sort of make them look silly in the air. And there are things around, there's, there's a sort of different discussions around this spell because Harry becomes a little bit intrigued by it. Well, part, part of the outcome of this is Harry says, well, what, what's this spell? Is it, a, is it like an evil person's spell and my father was using it? Why is he using the same spell as these evil Death Eaters? Why is he doing the same thing that these Death Eaters do? And someone explains to him, well, it's sort of a spell which is, is used in that way, but it's also not always used in that way. And spells go in and out of fashion. 
But the other side of this encounter is, well, all of a sudden, Harry's whole perspective has been shocked by this new information. Because up until now, he's thought, my father was a great man, and this old grump, Severus Snape, is just a real mean grump to me for no reason at all. What's his problem? What is so wrong with me that he has to be such a meanie to me? And that whole story is shattered for Harry. It's such a shocking shift in his perspective that, oh, his father was really nasty to someone. Was Harry's father the Draco Malfoy of his time? Was he the bully of his time? And there's no real way for Harry to resolve this. There's no answer to it. And of course now Snape has walked in and said, what are you doing in this memory bowl? Why are you looking at this? And that is a very tense moment. Because of, of course Snape didn't want him to see that. Which means that there's still some very hurt feelings around it. And there's a lot of significance to it. And it means now, well, these characters are connected. They're connected in a very strange way. Because Snape has seen Harry's personal interior world in a way that no one else has. And Harry has seen his interior world most probably in a way that no one else has well Harry's seen a portion of it Harry's starting to realize there's more to this man this is the this is the shock that Harry has and when we say to ourselves I think there's more to you than meets the eye there's something more to this person's story it's usually in a curious sort of way it's usually out of interest but very, very few times in life, we get the real shock that we need. Which is that, no, actually, there is a very big amount that you don't know about someone. And, it, well, it might be that Harry's lacking in the green meme. He's lacking in his pluralistic skills. He's still rationalist. Just like Hermione is taking an interest into the house elves, well, Harry should be taking an interest into his other people, other figures in his life. And he's not quite there yet. And this shock might be something that gets him on the way. So the other side of this is that Another or another thing in our plot to understand is that Voldemort is someone so skilled in legilimency that he can read people's minds just by sitting next to them. And this is quite an unsettling thing. It's quite a dark skill. 
and the comparison that we made before of, well, Osho and his followers is very different to Voldemort and his followers because the skill of reading someone's mind can come from a place of love. It can come from a place of care. It can come from a place of trust. Power, however, corrupts this. And when you read someone's mind for control, well, then it's not coming from a place of love. That's just dominance. That's just evil. And we learn more about that. We we learn more about the character of Voldemort, the younger version of Voldemort. We're going to talk about that next episode. Today I just want to finish off with one more bit of our plot, which is that Harry goes to visit Mr. Weasley in the hospital. And he's quite nervous about this because Harry's sort of still thinking, well, it was me that attacked you. And of course, Mr. Weasley says, no, thanks to you raising the alarm, I'm still alive. Thanks to you having that vision and coming, sending someone to come and get me, I'm still alive. So that was a positive outcome for Harry. And that was at a positive reinterpretation of his vision of him being the snake, the snake and attacking his friend's dad. And then the other thing is, well, Harry's look, walking around the hospital and he sees, he sees Lockhart, which is his old teacher that had done the memory charm on himself. He'd had the memory charm that had backfired. And his whole, his whole thing, his whole, like, he's like this, he's like a fairy. He's just happy and, oh, what's going on? Oh, were you my friend? You can be my friend. And it's this, it's a very hilarious thing to, to encounter this wizard who's got no memory whatsoever. And he's sort of in this hospital ward and they're all thinking, oh, do you remember this? Oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. And it's a very, very funny moment to have a reappearance of that character. And, well, the emotional colorfulness of this scene in the hospital is very good because we have the funny of Lockhart. It's a little bit disturbing, but it is also very funny. I mean, we have a giggle at him. We we like to giggle at that guy. He's a pretty good character to laugh at. But on the other side, well, there's something quite sad and very dark, which is that Longbottom's parents are there. So Longbottom, Neville, Neville's parents are there. So Neville is one of Harry's friends. And he was the one that had his parents tortured with the pain curse by Lord Voldemort. And it wasn't even until now, in, in year four, that Harry knew, that Harry found out what happened to Neville's parents. And this is another big shock to him, just like the shock of, oh, there's more to Snape than I could have imagined. And, oh, there's more to my father than I could have imagined. It's like the same again. Oh, there's more to my friend Neville, who I never even asked why he lives with his grandparents. He never even said anything about his parents. 
So Harry's story of coming of age has a lot of shocks in it as to why people are the way they are and what their backstory really is and how they act the way they act because of the memories and the past experiences they have and their family situations and how things were for them when they were younger. So I think we'll just leave it there. I wanted to keep this short, but we've already been going on. There's a lot in legilimency. And there's a lot in occlumency. We really didn't talk about occlumency at all. It's really just a matter of, well, well, let me take it. The, The reason we didn't talk about occlumency so much is because we want to have an open mind. It's to our advantage to have perspectives overlaying. So we don't want to be closing our mind. And in the case of Harry, well, he's in a different situation to us. Well, well, it, it, let me say, it's a tangent. Let, let's cover this a little bit more in the next episode. Just, just briefly, we'll, we'll look at occlumency. But today, let's just leave it with the plot lines that we've covered and legilimency. So, for now, we can finish up by just sitting quietly for a few minutes. And don't, don't rush off, as always. I always ask you this. Just take your time to let this episode sizzle before you do whatever else you're going to do. You always need time to sizzle. Sizzle time is important time. So let's have some silent sizzling together. And that's all I have to say for now.